Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number 13 on the list. Which means that in this episode, we'll be talking about Max Steiner's score for the seminal 1933 monster fantasy adventure film, King Kong. The screenplay for King Kong was written by James Creelman and Ruth Rose, based on a story by Edgar Wallace and Marion C. Cooper. It was produced and directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shudzak. John, give us a quick sketch of King Kong. King Kong is an important landmark of early filmmaking. It is conceived as a giant spectacle full of, for their time, groundbreaking special effects of animation, and the whole movie plays as a big adventure ride. It stars Robert Armstrong as adventuresome, fearless director Carl Denham, Faye Ray as a girl because there has to be a girl in it, and Bruce Cabot as a guy because apparently there also has to be a guy in it. Yeah, so adventuresome filmmaker Carl Denham leads a crew and these actors to a mysterious island where they run afoul of a bunch of crazy monsters. And then, well, something goes wrong for Fay and King Kong, and he winds up rampaging through Manhattan. Good enough? Good enough. So, John, this is the oldest movie on the list, and it feels like the oldest movie. Yeah, it definitely feels like the oldest movie. And what's more, I think it's the oldest possible movie that there could have been on this list, which I think is a big reason why it's on the list. Yeah, well, I think that its status as first film score is overstated because just Max Steiner's resume, he had written some film scores previous to this. I'm specifically aware of one, The Most Dangerous Game, by the same filmmakers the previous year with some of the same actors, which has a Max Steiner score, which isn't quite as big and bombastic and conspicuous, but it doesn't sound like it's another species. It's a film score. So I don't think this is literally the first film score, but I think it is such a big splash that it's an appropriate marker for the beginning on the scale we're looking at for this best ever list. Yeah, well, I think it may, in fact, be fair to say that Max Steiner was the inventor of what we think of as film music. Well, again, it depends what you mean by what we think of as film music, because there had been music through all the silent era, live music, and then sometimes pre-composed live music that was fairly elaborate. Like the through-composed score for Metropolis, which is a pure silent film, and yet it has a score all the way through. So you have to start qualifying. This is the first sound film with dialogue and effects with the score, you know, Max Steiner was definitely at the birth of that whole combined practice. Yeah, it's not really interesting to litigate uh, exactly what it is that it is the first of, but suffice to say that it is an enormous landmark at the beginning of the timeline. Yeah, that's right. So that's great. And that is important and really worth celebrating. You know, if you're going to make a list of important scores Absolutely, this is a no-brainer to put on your list of important film scores. I guess the question for me in watching it and thinking about what I was going to say about it on this podcast is, to what degree does it also go on a list of the best scores or my favorite scores? You know, how many important points does it get? And is your scale weighted towards importance or best? Mm -hmm. Like if you made a a list of the best all-time recording technology 
you know, like I got my Pro Tools rig with a Neumann microphone. That's one of the best things you can do. And then in the 60s, they had those, you know, vacuum tube uh, preamps. And that had that really warm sound that you can uh, put on a list. And then I guess you have to put the Edison wax cylinder on a list because that was the beginning. And, you know, that created everything. And we laud Edison as the inventor of many, many things. But the things that he invented, you know, wouldn't turn up on a list of the best examples of those things today. The appreciation that we give them is different. This is the quandary. This is the dilemma that I've been trying to figure out how to exactly relate to my admiration of this score to reconcile that with how much I actually enjoy it. Well, yeah, I think that that issue is actually complicated by the fact that this movie, King Kong, continues to be beloved today. It is not just a museum piece that museum aficionados are fans of, but it's a movie that people are still into. When I was uh, looking online, looking on YouTube, just prepping for this, I was kind of surprised to see how many seemingly young people, like teenage-seeming commenters. I guess they all seem like teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody commenting on YouTube is a teenager. Yeah, well, some of those teenagers are really and genuinely into King Kong. Like, they think it is scary and exciting and awesome. And, you know, when he kills the Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's kind of awesome, right? That's an awesome fight sequence. I really got a charge out of that. There's a whole lot to it. They fight, they wrestle... In fact, did you see that the producers of the film had themselves been wrestlers and they did the fight choreography and demonstrated it to the animators? And, you know, Kong like does all these wrestling moves and pries the T-Rex's jaws open. Yeah, it's horrific. It's horrific and it's cool. And, you know, the animation of it, once you get into it, you can really get lost in it. Yeah, so this movie is not just a kind of Edison film. It's a movie that still has some kick in it for some people. I totally get it if you think monkey's too fake, story's too stupid, I can't get into it. But lots of people still can get into this movie and do. And so I think by picking this score, they were hoping to, on the one hand, be saying, yeah, well, this is very important because it's at the beginning. And on the other hand, to say, and it's for a great movie that really works and the score is a vital part of how it works. So it's a great score. You know, it's not just a historical nod. But I do think that complicates the question of like, well, if we are saying it is of great quality, is it really of comparably great quality to these other ones? It is tough because some kind of handicapping is going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so not only is this, you know, at the beginning of the timeline of film music, but it is sort of itself wrestling with some of the existential questions of what is film music. And you can sort of feel that in how the music enters this movie. You know, there's music for the main titles, and it kind of trails off into some establishing shots of a boat in the harbor. Say, is this the moving picture ship? Yeah. And then there's no music for like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that stretch during which there is no music is pretty much how movies were in 1933. The format was that there would be title music at the beginning, there'd be title music at the end, and then any other music that would appear in the middle of the movie, you know, they kind of didn't know what to do with it. There was great tradition already by 33 of singing and dancing musicals, and of course, then you heard the music, but that was because the characters on screen were singing and dancing. It was part of the show. It was diegetic, as the 
post-determinism, meaning that it was within the world of the movie, it was necessitated by what you were looking at. Yeah, and occasionally you would get, you know, like, if the action suddenly moves to Switzerland, you would hear, like, a little Swiss music just to top off the establishing shot. But that would be it. There wouldn't be scene music in most movies. Yeah, and when filmmakers started to try to figure out, well, you know, silent movies were accompanied by music, and, uh, you know, opera is accompanied by music, and that's effective. That helps the storytelling. So how can we get this into this new art form in which you can actually see the things on the screen happening in front of you, they kind of had to cheat at it. They had to sort of shoehorn the music in. If they wanted there to be a schmaltzy violin playing, they had a violin player walk through the woods behind our lovers uh, in the distance. Have you ever seen uh, Murder, 1930, early Hitchcock movie? where he wanted a scene that would be accompanied by Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. Everyone apparently wanted that to be in their movies. And so the guy turns on the radio and the radio announcer is like, and now we'll listen to the prelude from Tristan and Isolde. And then it's just on in the background. But they have to establish at the beginning, it's because he turned on the radio. This is why you're hearing that, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Hitchcock, because now that gives me license to tell this famous story, which I think is important to tell, even though it doesn't concern Max Steiner. When Hitchcock was making the movie Lifeboat in 1944, Hitchcock didn't want there to be a score for Lifeboat because people would wonder where the music is coming from in the middle of the ocean. The movie just takes place on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Where would the music be coming from? And David Raxon, who is a composer, we're going to get to one of his scores later on in the list. Mm -hmm. Raxon was told this and he shot back, well, ask Hitchcock where the cameras are coming from. That's where the music is coming from. And, you know, this gets at this kind of fundamental existential question of why is it that you hear, you know, a symphony orchestra playing while you're watching some stuff happen that is not a symphony orchestra playing? That very concept was kind of being invented here by Max Steiner. You know, if not in this movie exactly, then sort of... Yeah, around this time. Around this time and mostly by him. Yes, that concept was being pioneered. And I think part of the, also the reason that this movie is a significant landmark is because the studio wasn't going to pay for a big score because that wasn't generally done and this was already a super expensive movie and it wasn't going to happen. And Marion C. Cooper, one of the brains behind the movie, knew that it was important for his special effects spectacular and paid out of pocket for Steiner to make as big a score as he could, basically. I read that he got reimbursed later because it was the right choice. But <laughs> yes, that it was kind of a genuine creative investment. It was not the default thing to do at all. The default thing would have been to have a fairly small group playing and to have music at the beginning and the end and hardly any in between. Yeah, that question of, well, where's the music coming from? Reviewers of the day were wrestling with it. There's a quote here from the syndicated columnist Molly Merrick, who was annoyed and said that the musical effects in the picture become a bit comic at times, as, for instance, when we hear a full symphony orchestra in the heart of the dangerous Kong country, when there should have been nothing but tom-toms. <laughs> Some of the musical techniques, just in terms of what notes are playing, what kind of chords to use, were being used in silent films. But mm -hmm. in silent films, you were in the room with the either orchestra or pianist, and you could see them. So the answer was, it's not coming from inside the movie, it's coming from the theater. It's coming from down the aisle, from where I'm sitting. It's sort of part of the event 
of the showing of the movie rather than being part of the movie. At some level, I think people understood that. Yeah, so part of what this movie is doing is saying, like, the soundtrack is going to be part of the event. The soundtrack is going to be there to manipulate you, the audience, not just to convey information about the world of the movie to you. And yeah, you do have to kind of make a leap to believe in that. So it seems like Steiner kind of knew that he had to hoodwink the audience a little bit into accepting that the music was, yeah, coming from the soundtrack and was part of the film, even though we weren't seeing musicians on screen. That it was part of the film, but not part of the world that was being right. described to you. Yeah, that's the innovation here. And he held back with it. There's no music for the first 20 minutes of the film. And, you know, this is how other films of the time felt. You know, if you watch through this sequence when there's this conversation that is kind of amazingly misogynistic and also intensely boring about finding a girl to act in his movie. You never had a woman in any of your other pictures. Why do you want one in this? Holy mackerel, do you think I want to haul a woman around? Then why? Because the public, bless them. Must have a pretty face to look at. And then he goes out and finds a girl to act in his movie. And then they go on the ship. And there's a screen test on the ship, you know, where she first practices her scream and all of that. And if you watch that, there's a lot of scenes that nowadays would definitely be scored that felt empty. But it was just the practice of the day that they were not scored. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Anne, but you can't look away. Oh, yeah, at the end of that scene when, I guess it's Driscoll looking on, or one of the sailors, she screams, practice scream, and then he mutters, what does he think she's going to really see? Yeah. It's such an obvious kind of, you know, play a foreboding chord. Yeah. Just, like, land that. Dun-dun-dum. Yeah, just, let's dig into that. Scream for your life! (laughs) What's he think she's really going to see? And there's nothing there in an audience like us who were completely accustomed to the later practices that really does seem like a, you know, you missed your cue. You clearly were supposed to play something there, but there's nothing. He grabs the arm of the person he's standing next to. And yeah, the music definitely should have gone dun-dun-dun when he did that. So Steiner held back, though, from putting any music through the sequence. And indeed, the music only kind of creeps into the film when the ship finally approaches Skull Island. We start to hear the tom-toms, the tom-toms that Molly Merrick thinks uh, were the only thing that we should have been hearing. And the score kind of blends in, kind of sneaks in along with them. Listen, you hear anything? No. And the characters are talking about the tom-toms. They can hear them, but, you know, they can't hear the harp and the strings that are also playing. We can hear that. That's not breakers. That's drums. So it's a little bit of a trick that Steiner's playing on us. You know, sort of introducing the concept of music stealthily. If you consider this a line that is hard to cross, and you have to be careful about where you draw it in the movie, I think it makes a lot of sense to draw it there because everything prior to that point takes place in more or less realistic world obviously not realistic in terms of what's happening but realistic uh you know there's no fantasy elements and there's no sort of blatantly exotic sized uh there's none of this pulpy feel that as soon as they get to the island like look there's a mountain shaped like a skull and there's a mysterious made-up tribal rites going on 
then, you know, okay, now we're in the world of pulp, and it's a bit like a dream, it's a bit like a daydream, it's a fantasy. And so, yeah, that seemed to me like the place where, if you're going to say, we're transporting the entire action to a slightly, at least in 1933 terms, kind of surreal place where there's this music playing. That, yeah, indeed, that columnist did not understand where it was coming from. Right. That's the place where it happens. When they get to the island, magic starts to take hold. You know, during this sequence, when they're on the boat and they're apprehensively looking at the island and they're talking about the jungle drumming and all of that, you know, the music kind of plays, by necessity, it plays continuously because it's sort of based around this continuous, regular rhythmic drumming. Come on, Ed. All right, boys, let's go. Take it easy with that camera. Okay. Any ammunition for those guns? Yes, sir. Be careful those bombs. Strangely, that right, felt to me sort of the most island. modern in this score in terms of you know how things might be treated today. I completely agree. I actually thought that's the cue that sort of holds up the best. Yeah. first one with the low brass, it is ominous, and it does kind of cast some fog over the whole movie in a satisfying way. I think it's the part that I'm the most able to go back to and really enjoy the flavor, yeah. And I think that's because he hadn't gotten up to all of the Mickey Mousing he was going to do later. He hadn't gotten up to the parts of the score where the music was going to exactly, literally transcribe the action of going up and falling down. continuous wash of frenetic energy he hadn't gotten up to that yet and it sort of feels like the least old-fashioned part therefore yeah to me the parts of this score that have aged the best in the sense of seeming like they're continuous with later practice were the parts that play through the scene rather than match the scene yeah whether it's mickey mousing or a different kind of matching there's a lot of matching going on in this movie Actually, what occurred to me is that it's a lot like silent film practice in that if you went to a, you know, not a high-end theater and there was just a pianist in silent film days, like that pianist would have seen the film, you know, once before to prep for the showing. But they're basically an audience member who is just, you know, trying to supplement the movie, give it a little extra push. So, you know, there's something scary on screen. They play some scary stuff. Look, there's something scary. Yeah. They don't have dramatic insight. They don't have deeper knowledge of the action than the audience does. So they're, in a sense, just repeating back to the screen what the screen is telling it. They don't know anything else about the movie other than what the movie is already doing. And a lot of this movie operates on that level. It's like, Kong is rampaging around. We can all see it. Here's what that might sound like in musical form. And so the scenes that to me stood out as having the most impact were the ones where he dared to get a little ahead of the action or stay a little behind it, you know, like, I'm not going to get worked up yet, even though these guys are, or I'm just going to play the mood while they worry about something else. So that early scene of them on the boat sort of contemplating the island that they're about to go explore 
was a strong example, I thought, of where movie music would end up. The music picks something to ground itself to, picks a way of serving the picture and sticks to that and, you know, does its job. When he's doing that, he does a good job of it, but there's only so much of it in this movie that is, as you said, mostly frenetic. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, there's not that many examples of that thing you were describing where he's getting ahead of the action or playing through something rather than frenetically matching it. I think that was a really nice articulation of a silent film pianist's strategy, and absolutely, I think it describes a lot of what we're subjected to in this. A lot of these moves are absolutely silent film moves. It's, there's a thing, ta-da! Now they're going over here. Hey, audience, guess what it sounds like when King Kong is climbing the Empire State Building? (laughs) What do you think the music sounds like when he's climbing up the Empire State Building? Just make a guess. (laughs) All right, now here's how it goes. That's a pretty good game, Andy. You know, I actually had an idea for a different game that maybe we could play, which is let's listen to this music and see if we can guess what direction the action is going in while it's playing. Got it? Do you have your guess? I have a guess for what kind of thing was going on on screen, yeah. Those are some fun games. <laughs> fun games with... Yeah, games you can play with King Kong. Games you can play at home. Yeah. So the fascinating thing about it is that in a silent film, there were no sound effects. So if someone is tumbling off of a cliff and then they fall to the bottom, there's no smack unless a musician plays a smack chord. So that's the reason to play it. Right. So then in this movie, a sound movie, a talkie, they could easily just play the sound effect. I mean, you hear sound effects throughout the whole movie. And yet, in a lot of places, he makes this deliberate choice to render things that same way as music. Uh, And sometimes they do both at once. Like in the scene where Kong first appears, his off-screen presence, his approach, is indicated by these footsteps and roaring. And the roaring is a sound effect, but the footsteps are just music. They're just in the orchestra. I mean, you process it essentially as a sound effect. There's no ambiguity that those are footsteps, but there's no actual sound effect there. Yeah, you know, when Kong wins the fight with the snake monster by slamming it into the ground a couple of times, in my memory there was a sound effect there, an actual sound of the thing hitting the ground. Mm -hmm. But when I went back to check, no, it's just the musical sound effect of a big orchestral chord synchronized with the action with a big cymbal crash. And yes, the music serving that sound effect function. Right, exactly. So what's fascinating about this is that these techniques in the silent era were mandatory. They were informationally necessary. And now they no longer have that function. They're being used because even when they're not mandatory, they have an intensifying function. I mean, when we're talking about Mickey Mousing, we're basically talking about duplicating information. I think he, by our standards now, overdoes it. But Mm -hmm. I think what was amazing is that it has any effect. I think it probably was kind of 
a surprise to people like, oh, you can intensify what's going on on screen. You can make it seem big by playing music even when you don't need music. <laughs> it does latch onto the action. That quote that you read from the columnist who thought it didn't is really interesting because I think that that is a really hard mindset to get back into now. To really recognize, like, why would there be Wagnerian music playing? It doesn't make any sense. Because it just does make sense. It makes sense at such a deep, instinctive level to me. Doesn't it to you? Yeah, it absolutely does. You know, that's what, that's what we've been talking about for all these episodes. And we've talked about all the different ways that music can give you access to emotions that complement what you're looking at, even if they're not exactly the emotions that are playing on the screen. And music can bridge things together. And music can just be a component of storytelling We've talked about so many different ways that it can do that. And yeah, this is sort of, by comparison, rudimentary. Yeah, it's a very primitive, primitive relationship to storytelling, but it relates to imagery. And, you know, the fact that it's special effects imagery is not incidental here. Right. Because it's fake, it really does benefit from having an accomplice in the music. Since the visual is just some models on a table... It has use for the kind of hype that the music is providing. Yeah, so the resonance of, like you said, the pianist looking at the screen and sort of playing back at the screen what the screen was showing to him, you know, it has a resonant effect absolutely here because we're looking at stuff that is demonstrably fake, but the music is saying, it's real, it's real, it's happening, it's real, it's happening, it's real, it's happening. Then it says, it's yeah. real, it's happening, it's real, it's happening, a little higher. Then it says, it's real, it's happening, it's real, it's happening, a little higher. Yeah. That concept of the pianist basically improvising along to the screen. Yeah, and pulling from a box of, you know, everyone has their own bag of tricks. Yeah, absolutely. I have my own bag of tricks. I play piano. I accompany, uh, you know, improv comedy. Sure. I absolutely have a bag of tricks that I go back to. <laughs> One of the tropes in my bag of tricks is if there's a scene that's supposed to be a Western scene and the bad guy comes into the saloon in the Western scene. You know, like there's that Far Side cartoon, do you remember, where there's a saloon piano player and a guy standing next to the saloon piano player says, bad guy coming in, Arnie, minor key, minor key. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very deep-seated trope that when the bad guy comes into the saloon, it sounds like this. Here's a scary chord, and then you take that scary chord and you move it up a half a step. Here's a more scary chord, and then another scary chord. These diminished chords, each time you ratchet it up, it gets scarier. And that technique of play a scary thing and then play it again a little bit higher and keep repeating that, boy, this whole score is made out of that. Yeah, and I think that it is not to this score's benefit that as his main motive, as his thematic material... Yeah. Steiner has chosen da 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 right <laughs> three notes that's the theme from King Kong that's King Kong's theme if you had not told me you need to pay close attention to the King Kong score you need to think about it you need to talk about it I think I got through the whole movie without identifying it as thematic because effectively the theme is da, da, da. And then the developmental, you know, use of the theme is da, 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 <laughs> da, 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 da. Yep. Which 
when you just listen to that, that's just, you know, bread and butter, tension, time-filling nothing. Like, that's <laughs> non-motivic material in every other score. And so I think a lot of the effort that Steiner puts into leitmotif management and, you know, giving thematic connections to things just doesn't really work for the ear. It's not really recognizable as having an identity. Yeah, it just winds up being this indistinct wash of fervor. And then one of the other motivic ideas is for Fay Ray's character and Darrow. Right. But it is, yeah, bizarrely similar to the King Kong material. <laughs> yeah, it's really the same. Instead of da, 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 it goes da, 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 da. So there's a couple more notes, but it's basically <laughs> the same thing. Right. It's descending line. Yeah. It's a descending line, and sure enough, he develops it in exactly the same way. Like, this is when Anne is being led to the altar in the sacrificial rite to be offered up to King Kong by the natives. We hear the Anne melody Mm -hmm. getting played again and again, higher and higher, higher and higher. It's the same development technique. It's just like, you're watching this? How about now? Are you watching it now? Just to shout out to Wagner, I think part of the source for this kind of endless sequences, which really are the just the way it works, it's yeah. just how the score works. I think it comes from this obsession with the prelude to Tristan and Isolde that wasn't just Steiner's obsession. Like no. It was really going around for a long time there. Gee, and I wonder if we're going to talk about that next episode, too. We might be talking about that again. I mentioned it earlier as the thing that Hitchcock wanted to put in his movie. It was just this epitome of drama in music for so many people. I grew up with it. You know, it was the height of opera. And this piece essentially has the theme. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. (laughs) But... If you listen, Wagner is being a lot more nuanced and sophisticated, and the fabric that he weaves out of this material is a high-end fabric. We don't need to go into the technical details for why, but just a little glimpse of the Tristan score. doing is such a kind of reduced 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 to a caricature impression of that and yet i do think that's where it comes from steiner talked about wagner as the source for the style he was writing in yeah apparently uh we read this article that related that when steiner would be complimented as person who invented movie music he would kind of pass it off and said no no it was wagner if wagner had lived today he would be the number one film composer yeah well hard to say whether that's true but (laughs) what steiner was doing is uh poor man's watered-down Wagner sound. The sequences are very much a part of Wagner, you know, going up and going down and repeating the thing, and it gets more and more intense. But yeah, I think the bag of tricks that he dips into to fill out this movie is strangely small. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm allowed to hold that against it, even though it's 1933, because that's just a compositional question. It's not a do you understand film scoring question. I don't see any inherent reason why you couldn't have come up with a little bit more harmonic variety or just variety. Yeah, I agree. 
just to go back to my take on this movie, the movie is fun to watch and appreciating and savoring the film score is just not a part of how I would normally watch it. It's a completely subliminal element. I don't know, subliminal, it's way in your face. Okay, but its function is not to be listened to. Yeah. And you know, this is a thing where we have a podcast about film scores, we're talking about this. This is obviously a recurring issue. How much are you supposed to pay attention to it? But I think this is, for this AFI list, this is as far toward the no one ever thought you were gonna pay attention to it direction as we're gonna go. Yeah. But this is not music that is meant to be appreciated musically. It's like your chair moving on the Mission to Mars ride or whatever. It's just like <laughs> giving you some bumps in sync with the bumps in the movie so that you're more likely to yelp. Yeah, and I am here to tell you, as we were uh, getting ready to do this, I sure enough went and listened to the King Kong soundtrack on its own without the movie, and it is hard to take. It is just like <laughs> slapping my face the whole time. It's unrelenting. Well, it's hard to take if you're attending to it. Yeah. But I think of when I was a kid and I, you know, Saturday morning I'd go down and watch cartoons which have crazy frenetic music that only much later in life did I think, oh, it's really interesting to pay attention to it. But the way you process it then is you don't even recognize it as music. I don't think that putting this music on in the background goes into the same part of my brain as, you know, pop music or classical music or other scores that we've looked at. I think that it's fiddling with me at a more base level than that. And when I let it go in there, then the fact that it's repetitive and simplistic and kind of square uh, doesn't really bother me. You know, when we were talking about Dunkirk for the Oscars episode a couple episodes ago. I was thinking about that too. Because, you know, we talked about shepherd tones of things that seem to be always rising just to give you an effect. Yeah, that's kind of what this is doing. And I said, well, I don't know if it's exactly music music, but it certainly has an effect. Yeah, that's kind of what this is doing, too. Yeah, well, I guess what I wanted to ask you was, we both really liked the score to Dunkirk, and we recognized how it was unusual compared to other modern scores, that it was so closely wedded to what you were looking at, and it was following the exact contour of what was happening dramatically. Can you explain why we really liked and responded to that and this doesn't feel the same way? I think that Dunkirk, part of what was interesting is that it was kind of just a constant companion, literal, transcribing the action, as you said, but it also was fundamentally playing through everything. It was not being like a silent film pianist who mm -hmm. jumps when they see something that makes you jump. It was laying down the foundation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess the difference here is that the Kong score does not lay down the foundation. It gilds everything. It's icing on every aspect of this movie to try and up the value, which is really different from being the foundation. That's a good one. Maybe another differentiation is that for Zimmer to score Dunkirk, he had to make emotional decisions. He had to decide, I am telling the audience, this is how this experience feels. And it was a transcription of that as much as it was a transcription of the physical action. King Kong is only a transcription of the physical action. Slavishly so. Well, it's not pure cartoon music. I actually thought at one point that Steiner clearly has a gift for getting what the producers thought a shot was good for. Hmm. This happens to be a movie in which almost every shot, the point is like, it's a spectacle and, you know, look at him crush a guy. Yeah, I can think of an example that, yeah, he's absolutely doing what is called for, but it struck me as a little uninspired. The shot, you know, when you see it, it's an iconic looking shot when Kong finally breaks through the giant 
doors. Mm-hmm. He sends everybody scrambling and screaming, running away from him. It's this very big sort of entrance moment. He breaks the doors open, and there he is standing there in all his glory and you know, roaring and whatever. And the music, yeah, sure enough, goes ba-da-da-da. It's a big, scary chord. Producers were definitely happy to get a big scary chord there, but it also struck me as, you know, maybe a missed opportunity to add something, to play something, to do something transcendent, even with the music. Oh, I mean, the whole movie is a missed opportunity if you start thinking, well, you know, what is this movie about? What's really going on here? And I think, you know, Peter Jackson's remake was an attempt to pick up on some of those. Yeah. Not all of them, but some of them. But what I guess I'm saying is that I felt like Steiner's degree of investment in the drama it just was exactly matching the production level of investment you know when the men go on an expedition to rescue Anne, and they go through this lost world island and see dinosaurs and things and there's some walking music as they're going through the forest (laughs) and it's like one two one two kind of goofy here we go yeah very sort of simple idea of walking it's jungle walking you can hear in the music that this is not just walking down the street this is trek and it's a trek through an unusual place but that's about it to trek through an unusual place and uh you're watching it happen right now that's the level of depth that goes down to it's like one floor down when that happened in the music i actually found it a little bit of a welcome contrast because we had just gone through this big action set piece with just a wall of frenetic music right so to have something a little bit calmer a little bit you know even goofy sounding i welcomed it But then it kind of wore thin pretty quickly for because it went on for a while, and yeah, they're walking for a while. And, uh, Do you know why it went on for a while? Because that's how long that sequence goes on. <laughs> yeah, the legs are long enough to reach the floor. Yeah, you know, if you count how many minutes those guys are walking through the woods, that's how long that music goes on. <laughs> Yeah, I agree about that walking music, but I wanted to point out this one little moment from within that sequence, though. And I noted this a couple of times through the score, that it seems like Steiner has picked some spots to leave holes in the music. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that is a really canny thing to think of doing. So they're trudging along through the jungle, and Denim leading the pack kind of stops and looks up and says that's him boys and the music gets out of the way there's this emphasis by omission of getting out of the way of a thing that focuses it it's like a spotlight around that one spot you know there are a bunch of those places in this score I kind of feel like I need to give him a lot of kudos for probably inventing that technique, wouldn't you say? Because I feel like he was sensitive to a moment of emphasis in the progression of this just trudging along, trudging along that the camera wasn't really even sensitive to. 
Well, what I noticed several times is that he gets out of the way of a sound effect that they wanted to highlight. And yeah. I was aware of what seemed to be a very carefully negotiated relationship between the sound effects and the music in an era where technically I can imagine they thought, well, we can't have both. They're not going to both read. So we need to be really careful about this. There are several places where there's an important scream or crash. Yeah, like when the sailors are running away from that uh, brontosaurus sea monster thing, and one of them tries to escape by climbing a tree, which isn't a good idea because the thing just comes and chomps them out of the top of the tree. Like, don't climb a tree when the monsters are very tall. But anyway, the music leaves a hole for this one particular big scream. And then there's also one in the Say I Think I Love You scene earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I, uh, uh, say, I guess I love you. They're kissing, and then the captain calls from off screen, and there's a cutaway to the captain yeah, in his office, wherever he is. Where is he? He's in a little room. <laughs> what do you call that? Yeah, yeah. The bridge? The what? The bridge of the ship? I well, I can't that. picture where he is. He's in a little room. I That's mean, fine. Is he on the bridge? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, he's not in his quarters because there's other people there. Like so it's probably the bridge. He's just sitting at a table. Ooh, a table. Anyway, <laughs> they're kissing. And then, you know, from elsewhere, we see the captain calling to him. And there's a cutaway to the captain. Mr. Driscoll, are you on deck? Yes, sir. Please come up on the bridge. Okay, so apparently it's the bridge. Anyway, for the cutaway, the music stops because... Right. That's not where the kiss is happening. That's not where the scene is happening. (laughs) But it has a humorous effect. It does have a humorous effect, and it's actually funnier than the supposed joke that comes when he's like... What does he say? Like, are you on deck? And he shouts like, yes, sir. Yeah, what is that supposed to mean? (laughs) It's not funny, but the cutaway effect kind of is funny. I don't know if it was inadvertent or not. It seems very vertent to me. Well, it's vertent that there's a... Advertent. Yeah, it's advertent that there's careful timing there, but whether it was meant to be comedic or whether it seemed like it was necessary because of this displacement of like, well, the love music needs to exist near the love. And when the camera's not near the love, we we have to make a space. I don't know, it was an interesting over-attentiveness to editing that would not be the style within a few years. That really wouldn't be done anymore. That really seemed like a kind of beginning of the practice experimentation. I feel like it was a pioneer for the comedy effect of we're playing a moment over here, you know, here's a lovey-dovey moment, and boy, you couldn't find music that better answers to the description of lovey-dovey than than what's for this... uh... Why, Jack, you hate women. Yeah, I know. You aren't women. Say, uh, Anne, I don't suppose, uh, I mean, well, you don't feel anything like that about me, do you? I mean, it's so boxed, prefabricated love music. It just doesn't feel like this movie. It doesn't feel like anything. No, it sounds like a vaudevillian, right? Like, here is the pretty girl in the vaudeville act. Yeah, it's very, I mean, I know it's 1933, but to me that sounds even 20s. It just sounds even earlier, sort of operetta-style love music. But it's a funny effect that, you know, here's the lovey-dovey stuff happening over here, and then it gets interrupted. You know, that effect shows up all the time in modern movies. It's a funny thing, because it's kind of 
instantly subverts your understanding. You know, the music is saying, this is a scene with these stakes and these feelings. And then if it goes away quickly, then there's a jarring humor moment in it. Mr. Driscoll, are you on deck? Yes, sir. So please come up on the bridge. My suspicion is that the jarringness of it is something they hoped wouldn't happen. And it only became comedy later sure. after they had turned away from this practice. Because here we are at the beginning. I don't know, it's an unusual moment, and I do think it reveals the age of this score. It reveals the moment when it was written. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so we've talked about how the music is just this kind of continuous, scary noise that plays through a lot. You know, a very high percentage of the time of this movie is in these action set pieces. And it sounds like this. Somebody asked you, and that somebody was me right now, mm-hmm. what would you say are the one or two most memorable, most standout action set pieces from this movie? What would you answer? I can give you the answer that you want because it is true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the fight with the T-Rex and the fight with the airplanes at the end. Yeah. Is that the answer you wanted? I mean, it's the correct answer, right? <laughs> Is the correct answer. And now... Go ahead. <laughs> Why are you pulling aside the curtain here as, as I'm trying to set up a thing? What curtain? I don't see any curtain. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so those two sequences don't have any music. Uh, why not? Because they have sound effects and there can only be one. I think that there's this attitude. You know, we've got some great sound effects for this fight, so you'll just have to hang tight, Max. <laughs> uh, that's what I thought was going on. What did you think was going on? No, that's probably exactly the answer. And yeah, the fight with the T-Rex, they have this really awful sounding squawk roar that they've got for the T-Rex that happens over and over. Run! 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 And then for the airplanes, of course, you're hearing the roar of the airplane engines and the machine guns. And yeah, the sound is definitely telling the story there. I guess what I wanted to ask you was, do you think that there's anything to the correlation that those are the real takeaway sequences that people really remember as what happens in this movie and they don't have music? Is there something that makes them stand out in memory a little bit more because they didn't have this, you know, unrelenting, Mickey Mousing, literal action resonance in the music happening? Or maybe I'm looking too hard. Maybe it's just those are the two biggest, you know, most important set pieces and that's why they're memorable. No, I think you're onto something there actually i think that when the music goes away a sense of the kind of seeminess that the music has also goes away and you think well now i might be about to see something (laughs) who knows what's going to happen yeah seeminess i think you're right all right well then that's i think that might i mean that's pretty damning of this score that's pretty damning that's what i was about to say and i didn't expect to get that far but you're kind of right I think that there's no question that the movie benefits from having music on this scale and sort of taking this tack of just kind of bulking the movie up. 
But yeah, as far as how it serves each moment, I'm not sure it is as caring as it could be. <laughs> I mean, I had made some notes here about like, uh, you know what? There's a pleasure to be taken in this kind of score because it's kind of like, uh, yeah, more metaphors having to do with rides. Like, oh, the whole movie's kind of like a haunted house ride and the score is just kind of like the little ups and downs in the track. And it's okay that it's just up and down because that's all you really want out of the track. But yeah, when I come to think of it, like that sequence where he breaks through the wall and rampages through the village and kills various natives, you know, cool stuff happens in that. And I don't really have a clear sense of its identity because it's not given any real identity. It's just more, more stuff. Yeah. Hmm. You want to cover any more stuff? Uh, yeah, a couple more things. Uh, we haven't yet talked about the native dances, which are kind of the showpieces of the score. <laughs> I mean, my take was, here's Steiner, kind of, it sounds like he's supposedly pulling out all the stops and really putting on a show, and yet it's still super square and super repetitive. Yeah, it definitely sounds like, you know, there are these native drums. The, the fact that we're hearing this drumming is the exotic element, but on top of that, it's very familiar Western-sounding music. Yeah, to me, it sounded like kind of the going caricature of Native American yeah. music. It didn't even sound like a, they're supposed to be in the Indian Ocean somewhere, and it's supposed to be in you know, Southeast Asia or Indonesia. I don't know exactly what culture we're supposed to think they're adjacent to, but the music is just a kind of like dum 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 dum. Yeah. This is the standard like Indian dance, which uh, I don't think is musicologically legitimate in the first place. No, there's a lot that is not uh, ethnographically <laughs> legitimate about this movie, and let's not dwell too much on it. You know, the big dance scenes, the big dance numbers, like, that truly is a missed opportunity because he just needed to make 16 bars be some other tune, come up with a different tune, and you add all of this value. He just really kept the material so, so limited. But it's got some vigor to it. Oh, and we also didn't talk about the interlude of Broadway music, which uh, okay. is kind of a nice touch in this score. Didn't you think? Yeah, I did enjoy that. It actually gives a kind of perspective to everything. It kind of reminds you... There are other worlds out there. There are other ways of being, and it makes the whole thing suddenly kind of wry and has a sense of humor all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. That He says, like, in a few months we'll be on Broadway, and then you hear this slick 30s Broadway premiere music, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, the pit band. Yeah. It is a lot of fun. They're having a lot of fun in that pit. Then make those pictures of those darling monkeys and tigers and things. But this is more in the nature of a personal appearance, madam. Well, I never thought I was going to see someone. Say, what is it anyhow? I hear it's a kind of a gorilla. Gee, ain't we got enough of them in New York? What about those people who went to see the show? of when King Kong was revealed as the eighth wonder of the world. They're all dudded up in their white tie and tails and, you know, opera dresses. Yeah, those are supposed to be uh, smarmy rich people, right? Yeah, I guess. It just seems like an odd proposition that they're all, like, walking in grumbling, oh, I had to buy this expensive ticket for I don't know what. It occurred to me that the showmanship is pretty poor, where he's <laughs> like, before I say any more, 
I want to show you the giant gorilla, <laughs> which is the entire attraction. And then I pull out the curtain and he says, there he is. And now without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Ann Darrow. And like, that's it. What, what's the rest of the show going to be? The rest of the show is, I will now ask the gentlemen of the press to come <laughs> forward so you can all witness the photographing of this marvel. The eighth wonder of the world. Speaking of that, King Kong shows up in the opening credits. There's the cast list. And then after the cast list card, it says, and King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world, as though he is in the cast. Mm -hmm. Did you know, in fact, that there is an entry in IMDb for King Kong as an actor? <laughs> oh, how many movies has he been in? <laughs> He's been in one movie. Oh, really? Here's the IMDb biography for King Kong. <laughs> King Kong was an actor known for King Kong, 1933. <laughs> <laughs> he died on March 2nd, 1933 in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> how do we know it was March 2nd? How does IMDb know that? Is that the premiere of the film? Is it the premiere of the film or is it the premiere of the King Kong, the Eighth Wonder of the World spectacle on Broadway? Could be both. The day he climbed the Empire State Building. <laughs> That's great. I'm surprised they didn't get him back for the remake, but I guess... Uh... <laughs> I guess if he died in 1933, he wasn't available. Well, that's why they had to turn to Son of Kong. Yeah, I've never seen that. <laughs> Which was a movie that actually got made, yeah. Yeah, within a year, like less than a year later. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention, you know, we were talking about he just has these da-da-da and then da-da-da-da-da, and that's not very much. He does have one kind of nifty motif, which is the da-da-da-da, which actually, you know, when you hear it, sounds like something. exactly what it means it has to do with adventure and the island and i don't know king kong it's just sort of another motif that's in the mix there do you know what i'm talking about the little triplet figure yeah sure but i was listening to that and i thought that has the most character of anything in this but i think i've heard it before and then i looked and in the score to the big sleep also by max steiner uh-huh I swear he uses the same triplet all right da, 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 da. it's like the philip marlowe figure in that what year is that movie? 46. I guess I wanted to tie that into talking about Max Steiner more generally, which I know we don't need to do totally because he'll be back. He'll be back later on the list yeah. with, I think, all around more sophisticated score. But part of Max Steiner's, you know, he's considered the, whatever, did we say it earlier? The father of film music or the grandfather of film music or the dean of film music or the <laughs> great uncle of film music. You know, he's the old man of film music who really established how this works. And he wrote hundreds of scores and was the sound of Warner Brothers for many years and the sound of Hollywood in a lot of ways. And it's hard to separate the idea of an individual with an individual style and strengths and weaknesses from just the vast influence of what he did. His bag of tricks overall was bigger than what we see in this movie. And I think that will become apparent in the next time we talk about him. But I do have a sense of him, and maybe this is unfair, but I have always thought of him as a little square a little too ready to keep going back to the same sounds that were beloved Hollywood sounds. But yeah, when I found that he had used almost the same figure in The Big Sleep, a different movie in a different genre and a different style, I thought, yeah, that kind of typifies what this stuff is. It's all... What did you say about Ben-Hur? That it was like a layer of felt that went over the whole thing? It was some kind of... Cotton batting. Yeah, I don't know if this is cotton batting exactly, but it's something you can buy by the roll. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely being churned. This is really stuff that you can just hear the churn going and it's getting churned out. 
And it wants to be that. It wants to serve the movie. Really, like if you picture the soundtrack as this strip that goes down the side of the film, this is music that wants to be like a vertical line down your film that, you know, attaches to every frame. Mm -hmm. And it's doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let's play the absurd game of putting this on the list of the other things. It doesn't sound like this is going to surpass E.T. for you, Andy. No, it's not. It's not. No, not for me either. You want to keep guessing where I'm going to put it? I have a pretty clear idea where I'm going to put it. Okay, I have a guess for where you're going to put it. Oh, really? I don't have a guess where you're going to put it, but you're welcome to do that if you want. Boy, this is getting layered. Yeah, all right. Maybe it's inversely absurd so as to make it less absurd overall. Okay, I think you're going to put this underneath the mission, between the mission and out of Africa. Am I right? I was actually going to put it above the mission. Okay, When we did Ben-Hur and I said, look, this is what Hollywood does and I value that and I'm happy for this to stand in for that, you know, I'm standing by that decision. Yeah. And I have something similar to say about this technique. As I said earlier, it reminds me of being in a completely non-analytical frame of mind and even a non-musical frame of mind and just being affected by the sounds of Hollywood and adventure and excitement. Like, it works for me at some level. But how much do I value that? And especially how much do I value this particular kind of square, kind of limited use of it? And I think the answer is I value it to the degree that this is a fun movie. And yeah, there's a kind of, I don't know, the movie's kind of like an ice cream sandwich to me. It's like a treat. It's kind of old school treat. It's not like a particularly good cookie or particularly good ice cream. But together, you know, I'm talking about the like the old brown rectangle ice cream sandwiches. Sure. With the little holes in the cookies. With the holes in the cookies. If you're like, how good is that cookie? Like, I don't know. I don't even want to answer that question. But do I like an ice cream sandwich? Sure. So is that better or worse than the mission? I think it's better because if you ask me, do I want to watch this or the mission? I would say, I definitely want to watch this. I don't want to watch the mission again. And yeah, I think the film score is part of the thing I'm responding to. So that's where I'm putting this. Okay. Yeah. I'm of a similar mind. I was definitely thinking the starting point of my ranking is that, well, I got to put this under Ben-Hur somewhere because yeah, Ben-Hur is a sort of similar, exactly as you say, this is what Hollywood sounds like. This is what Hollywood can do. This music is grand because it has to be. And those are the moves and there they are. I just felt like Ben-Hur, you know, was able to accomplish that kind of logistical aid to propping up the movie and also like have some real good tunes in it. And it just felt like the craftsmanship had evolved to a higher place. It's just so much more virtuosic. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So definitely below Ben-Hur. Is it better than on my list the next one down is on golden pond boy i don't know (laughs) all right i think i'm gonna slot this one in underneath on golden pond and above how the west was won in my list fair enough look the music that was written for how the west was won is absolutely better music than this oh yeah no problem being on the record as saying that i would happily put on the score to how the west was won to listen to oh yeah as an album there's no contest there's no contest there's just the intrinsic quality of the music composition is higher no doubt but you know i said before how many points does it get for its importance that's how many importance points i'm giving it i'm giving (laughs) it you know enough points for being the innovation of the very thing that we're even here to talk about, for coming up with the idea that there's going to be extra diegetic music that is telling the story, that is worth a lot. That's worth an awful lot that he really invented this practice. How much is it worth? It's worth enough (laughs) that it is between On Golden Pond and How the West Was Won on my list. So I think a couple of, not disclaimers here, but just things that I want to have on the record for people to keep in mind. One, 
I'm not sure that this was the best way to demonstrate Max Steiner's skill or value to a movie or whatever. I think that in the course of his huge career, there's more interesting stuff. And again, we will get to at least one such later on this list, so we can talk about it then. You know, like with Ben-Hur, I thought, well, this can be Miklos Roja. This is this represents him nicely, I think. Mm-hmm. And here I think this is Max Steiner on a particularly single-minded day. <laughs> and two, I don't want any listeners to accuse me. I mean, they can accuse me of whatever they want. And they have. I don't want to hear about it, John. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> No, everybody loves you, Andy. I don't want it to sound like we were like, oh, the 30s, we can't handle that. It's too old and it's too lame. We're not into that. Yeah. Because the next oldest film on this, we are soon going to talk about Eric Wolfgang Korngold writing a few years later. And his bag of tricks is so monumentally bigger and more intricate. And I think it's just important to remember It's not like music wasn't more sophisticated than this, or people, or drama. This is a particular way that this thrill ride spectacle of a movie chose to work. So this is really particular to this movie and not just to black and whiteness or old-fashionedness. Yeah. Okay. Okay, do you want to get toward wrapping it up? Yeah, unless you can think of any other jokes you want to make. Do you want to ask me some 800-pound gorilla (laughs) jokes, John? You can just do that. Just look some up. Hey, Andy, what does this score to a movie about a gigantic gorilla do? <laughs> Whatever it wants to, John. Ta-da-da. 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 <laughs> I wish it did whatever it wants to. I mean, that's really how we should end this. If only it did whatever it wants to instead of just doing da-da-da-da-da-da over and over. It didn't seem like it did. I guess whatever it wanted to was just to do the one <laughs> thing. Just like an actual monkey would. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm picking it myself and i'm sitting in this corner and i'm not gonna put on a show for you <laughs> well i put on a show it did put on a show hey i just put it back on the record again i think that king kong is a fun watch sure yeah it is i agree notwithstanding all of its political problems through modern lenses of being really racist and sexist oh yeah and don't try and interpret it don't try and do a reading on it in like a freudian reading or a political reading or whatever you're not going to like what you find (laughs) beware beware the giant gorilla okay next time well next time we're going to have a treat we're going to get to talk about bernard herman the first of two appearances of bernard herman on the list for his score for alfred hitchcock's movie vertigo I don't mind saying ahead of time that before we ever started working on this podcast and before we ever started making this official ranking of scores, I would often cite the score to Vertigo as one of my favorite film scores. So, sure. spoiler, I guess. How about you? I wasn't often citing what my favorite film scores were, but yeah, I'm into it. And I think Bernard Herrmann is totally fascinating, brilliant figure and strange that we've gone this far without having talked about him. <laughs> you know, we've been doing this a while now and only now we're getting to Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, in fact, you know how much of a while we've been doing it, Andy? Okay, how long? Well, we've been doing it so long that in fact we are now, as of this very moment, more than halfway through the AFI's list. It feels like we should be more than more than halfway through, but fine, I'll take it. <laughs> well, we did have that one extra episode, so. Yeah. Uh, Great. That's an achievement of sorts. Congratulations, Andy. Uh, Congratulations to you, John. Congratulations to us both. And congratulations to you for listening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you and congratulations to you. If you want to celebrate your achievement, (laughs) a great way to celebrate it is to do stuff for us, such as... Do stuff with us. Okay. Do stuff, quote, with, unquote, us, by writing a review for iTunes, um... 
Tell your friends to listen and talk to us by tweeting at Score Settlers on Twitter. Boy, you just never get more comfortable with saying this stuff. It's been a while now. I mean, my instinct is to say, do whatever you want, good people. Please do whatever you want. Yeah, make like an 800-pound gorilla and do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Where does an 800-pound gorilla leave a review of this podcast? <laughs> On iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's listen to some more film music, Andy. <laughs> okay, you can count on it, John. <laughs> <laughs>